Good morning, Incarnation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you remind us of your promises this morning revealed through the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Set our hearts on fire with love for you and transform us by the renewing of our minds. Amen. So I don't know how many of you were a part of the church in the 80s or 90s uh, or, or have ever heard of the ministry called Evangelism Explosion. Has anyone heard of that? Evangelism Explosion. This, this is a ministry that my wife Carissa was trained in during her youth group days growing up. Evangelism Explosion. All right, so besides having an awesome name, this ministry was built on a simple premise that when you ask people, why should God let you into heaven? Many people will reply, well, because I'm a good person. And that will set up the evangelist to share the gospel. That heaven is not just a good place, it's actually a perfect place. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, all human beings stand in need of the forgiveness offered through faith in Christ in his finished work on the cross. Now, whether or not this is still a good method of evangelism in an increasingly post-Christian world where a lot of people aren't sure whether they believe in heaven or hell or God or even right and wrong. That's another issue. But looking, uh, uh, but for those who, who, excuse me, for those who still do believe in an afterlife, I think this is still a common sentiment. Why should God let me into heaven? Because I'm a good person. Looking over the Ten Commandments, people will probably admit they've broken a few from time to time, but in general, they might judge you know, that the, the good outweighs the bad. But here's my question this morning. What if even Moses himself, the man who received the Ten Commandments from the very finger of God, wasn't found worthy of entering the promised land? This fall, we've taken a journey through the life of Moses and from his endangered infancy to his encounter with the burning bush in Midian, through the Red Sea rescue out of Egypt to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and all along the way, Moses has been portrayed as the principal protagonist of the story. The last three weeks, we've seen how Moses was a kind of prophet, priest, and proto-king, ultimately pointing forward to Christ, yes, but also depicting Moses along the way as a man worthy of emulation in his own right. Amen? Indeed, Numbers 12.3 describes Moses as the humblest man on the face of the earth. And when he finally does die, listen to how Moses is eulogized in the last verses of the Torah. It says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, and none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants, to all his, who is, and to all uh, in his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. That's Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. Simply put, Moses is the greatest human figure in the Old Testament. 
Yet I wonder how many of us have wrestled, truly wrestled with the fact that this same Moses, the greatest human figure in the Old Testament, was disqualified from entering the promised land. He wasn't deemed worthy. Now, that's a little disturbing, don't you think? And what makes it even more disturbing is that Moses' mistake seems so small, so insignificant compared to a lifetime of faithfulness. In fact, if we're honest, as we read the story of Moses' downfall in our passage today from Numbers 20, it's hard to say what Moses actually did wrong. One Christian scholar goes so far as to call it the most enigmatic incident of the entire Torah. And this opinion is common among Jewish interpreters as well who are mystified by this passage. How did Moses go wrong? How did Moses strike out? One article I read listed at least 10 different interpretations, including the suggestion that perhaps the biblical text is just intentionally ambiguous, either to protect the heroic image of Moses or perhaps to incite us to search the story more carefully. But whatever the reason may be, uh, getting to the bottom of this issue is not simply a matter of historical curiosity about this great biblical figure, Moses. It inevitably touches on how we view God as well as how we view ourselves. If we find that Moses is excluded from the promised land for what appears to be no good reason, then what does that say about the character of the God who excluded him? And perhaps more to the point in terms of where our hearts are at, if a hero like Moses couldn't get in, what does that mean for the rest of us? Please turn with me, if you would, to Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. It's on page 128 of your pew Bible. And verse 1 gives us the immediate context. The people of Israel are still wandering in the wilderness, and Miriam has just died. Miriam, the elder sister of Moses and a prophetess in her own right, has been one of the most important figures in the Exodus story. We've heard her mentioned several times throughout. And by the end of Numbers 20, her brother Aaron will also pass away. Now, their deaths, Moses, I mean, uh, Miriam and Aaron's deaths, are a reminder that the original generation of Israelites, those who were rescued from the house of slavery, had almost entirely died off in the wilderness by this point. And this is not the result of happenstance. God had excluded them from the promised land as a punishment for their persistent rebellion over their 40 years in the wilderness. The wilderness was a test of obedience, and that generation had failed. By the mercy of God, their sons and daughters would be permitted to enter the promised land, along with Caleb and a few faithful others, but only after the first generation had completely died out. Now, throughout this passage, the word congregation or assembly is used to refer to the Israelites. And this should be a familiar word to us. Who will this word be taken up to describe in the New Testament? Who's called the congregation? Right, the church, us. So um, this is what biblical theologians call a typological connection between Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. So Israel is a type of the church. Indeed, we are consistently reminded of this connection, are we not, in the midst of the season of Advent? Just as Israel awaited the first Advent, the first coming of the Messiah, so the church awaits his second coming. Just as the Israelites subsisted on manna in the wilderness, so the church subsists on the Eucharist in our present trials. 
And just as the New Testament congregation longs for the kingdom of heaven, so the Old Testament congregation longed for the promised land. Regarding Israel's testing and grumbling in the wilderness, the apostle Paul says to the New Testament church in Corinth, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So if the central drama of Numbers 20 deals with Moses being excluded from the promised land, well, Paul would say we need to listen up because it has typological significance for the church today. That's how the early church read the Bible. Verse 2 sets the stage for this central drama with the observation, now there was no water for the congregation. So a lack of water in the desert, that seems pretty basic, right? Pretty vital. In fact, the passage keeps the topic of water on our minds throughout by mentioning it about every other verse. Verse 3 continues, And the people quarreled with Moses, saying, Would that we had perished with our brothers when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you uh, made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And back to the main point, there is no water to drink. Now, up to this point in the story, the previous generation of Israelites had issued a whole slew of complaints. So monotonous food, desire for power, envy, self-protection, and many of these qualms had roused the anger of the Lord. So by this point in the story, we've sort of been conditioned as readers to think that all of the complaints of the Israelites were invalid. Uh, in fact, Moses seems to think so, but this is probably an unfair assumption. Past complaints about the lack of variety in their diet are one thing, but complaining about having no water in the desert seems pretty reasonable. In fact, it's helpful to, comp to compare the present passage with the almost identical story uh, from back in Exodus 17. Will you turn back there? It's on page 59, Exodus 17. Here the people lodged a similar complaint with Moses. Verse 3 says, The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Sound familiar? But notice, far from rebuking them, the Lord responds to their cry by miraculously providing water from a rock through Moses. And I think God's responsiveness to their cry gives us an initial clue about what he expected of Moses later on in Numbers 20. However, there are a few important differences in these parallel texts. You'll notice here in Exodus 17 that the Lord gives three distinct commands to Moses to bring some of the elders together, verse 5, to take the staff and to strike the rock, verse 6, and God promises that water shall come out of it and the people will drink. But now flip forward with me back to page 128, Numbers 20, and we see here again the Lord gives three commands. But notice that they're slightly different. So Numbers 20, verse 8, the Lord says, First, take the staff, 
Second, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. So remember in Exodus 17, it was just the elders. So here it's a more public occasion. It's in front of the whole nation. And finally, the Lord says, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So notice the commandment here is to speak to the rock, not to strike the rock with his staff. And this is to be done in the sight of the congregation before their eyes. But whereas the commands of the Lord in these two stories are slightly different, Moses's actions are drastically different. Let's take a closer look at how Moses responds in verses 10 and 11. These are the critical verses where we find out what really went wrong. So first Moses goes astray through his words and then through his actions. Verse 10 says, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. So far, so good. He's completed the first two parts of the Lord's instruction. But pay attention to what happens next. And he says to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? I mean, where did that come from? Now, there, there are a couple of problems with Moses' leadership here. And the first is anger. In his excellent book, The Bible Jesus Read, Philip Yancey captures the essence of Moses' outburst. He writes, only once did Moses' anger rear up strongly enough to defy God himself. When Moses smashed his walking stick against a rock in anger, you want water? I'll give you water. He screamed at the thirsty whiners. And that lapse caused him the dream of his life, the chance to set foot in the promised land. Now, in contrast, we don't see a hint of anger in the Lord's response to the people's request, either in Exodus 17 or in Numbers 20. Certainly, God is capable of getting upset with his people, and in such cases, cases he expresses himself. But here, Moses doesn't seem to be in step with the Lord's heart, does he? Ironically, Moses calls the people rebels, but the Lord turns the tables on him later in verse 24, referring to Moses' actions as rebellion. And since Paul says these things were written down for our instruction, it's worth asking ourselves this morning, how are we doing with anger, brothers and sisters? Does anger have a foothold in our lives? Sometimes in our modern world, it seems like we give extra credence to people if they show anger. We view it as a kind of sign of authenticity, right? And we can muster it up as a kind of virtue signaling. But scripture is rife with warnings about the folly of uncontrolled anger. Certainly, there's a place for righteous indignation in scripture, but scripture has so much more to say to chasten the anger that would arise within us. Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Likewise, James 1.20 warns that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I don't know if any of you have any experience with the anger of man not producing the righteousness of God. I can testify to this truth myself. I, if you know me, you probably know I have a pretty mellow disposition, uh, but a couple of my biggest mistakes throughout my ministry have been times when I've given vent to my anger. It's almost always a mistake. But beyond the problem of anger, there's a second issue Moses 
comments on here in verse 10. Um, namely, his language seems to attribute the power behind the miracle to himself and Aaron rather than to God. Do you see that? He says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, especially in light of the Lord's response, it seems like a good possibility that Moses and Aaron were guilty here of stealing the Lord's thunder. All right, so, so far we've just looked at how Moses went wrong in his speech, but the problems continue as we look at his actions. Verse 11 continues, and Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. Now notice the extra detail in the text it sort of calls us as readers to, to key in with our attention to what Moses is doing. It says, and Moses lifted up its hand. It's almost like as if the text is saying, now pay attention to what's going on here. Is this what God told him to do? And that fateful moment when Moses struck the rock with his staff, which he wasn't supposed to do at all. And not only once, but it says twice. Gordon Wenham writes, though this may seem like a minor deviation, the leaders of Israel were meant to be scrupulous in exact obedience to the law and God's instructions. Indeed, the Lord's punishment of Moses and Aaron comes swiftly in verse 12. He says, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. In essence, the Lord accuses them here of two things. First, he accuses them of unbelief. He says, you did not believe me. Now, it's not clear what this could mean unless somehow Moses didn't believe that mere speech could produce a waterfall, but he had sort of greater trust in the fact that if he smacked the rock like he had done in the past, that the water would gush forth. One scholar even suggests that the problem of Moses' unbelief might have been rooted as much in geological realities as theological. He points out that uh, in the first story in Exodus 17, there's a different word used for rock than is used here in the wilderness of Zin. And he notes that uh, certain Bedouin tribes in this region are known for recognizing limestone caps, these deposits that can develop on rocks, trapping water underneath. And when the Bedouins know the right place to strike the rock, it can release water from inside the rock. So this article is a bit speculative, but the basic point is in this cultural context, it would have taken greater faith to believe that mere words could produce water. But God gives a second reason in verse 12 for excluding Moses and Aaron from the promised land. He says that they failed to uphold him as holy in the eyes of the people. In other words, their public disobedience was an affront to the holiness of God, to the complete and utter holiness of God. It was not 75% obedience that the Lord was looking for from Moses. It was 100%. Likewise, we know that heaven is not like a, like a mostly holy place, but a completely holy place place. It is the holy of holies, the place where our mighty, holy God dwells and no sin may dwell with him. Now, of course, a fascinating aspect of this passage is that despite Moses's rebellion, the miracle still took place. Isn't that interesting? The rock still brought forth water, even abundantly. So the congregation drank them and their livestock. 
Now, Pastor John and I hope you will all take comfort this morning in the fact that despite the sins of the leaders, God still provided for the congregation. There should be a praise dance going on out here. (laughs) So to summarize, uh, perhaps this passage is not as ambiguous as it first seemed. Dennis Olson helpfully summarizes and sums up Moses' failing in three points. He said it involved disobedience of God's commands, ascribing to themselves God's power and honor, and not trusting God's power to fulfill God's promise. In short, disobedience, self-exaltation, and unbelief. These are the reasons why Moses was excluded from the promised land. St. Basil, the great, the fourth century church father who helped form the Nicene Creed, has referred to this passage as a clear demonstration of what Romans 11.22 calls the severity of God. Yet this same verse also speaks of God's kindness, does it not? The verse reads, consider therefore the kindness and the severity of God. And as we look at this passage, I think we see both. We see the holiness of God and we see the love of God. We see the judgment of God and we see the mercy of God. The Lord's kindness toward an undeserving people and his severity toward a sinful leader. But if you're anything like me, you're still tempted to think, Moses kind of got a raw deal here. Indeed, if anyone had the right to be let in the promised land on the basis of being a good person, it should have been the humblest man on the face of the earth. But apparently, even the great prophet didn't have that right. Even he was not worthy to enter on the basis of his own righteousness. Guys, I I hope we will view this passage as an icon of our inability to enter heaven because we're good people on the basis of our own righteousness. We can't do it. Now, this observation can either lead us to despair or to faith. In our despair, we would say, I know Moses wasn't perfect, but I also know he was light years beyond me. And if a man like that couldn't make it to the promised land, what hope do I ever have of entering in? And the answer, of course, in faith is none. If we're trusting in our own goodness to save us, for the scriptures clearly teach, and this passage reiterates that all have sinned and fallen short of the promised land have fallen short of the glory of God. So Moses sinned and missed out on the promised land, but did Moses miss out on heaven? Here I want to end our sermon series on the life of Moses on a note of gospel encouragement for our hearts, both for Moses and for us. Because first of all, in God's gracious timing, Moses does actually make it to the promised land. You may remember in the gospels, we find Moses with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking with Jesus about the true exodus, freedom from sin and slavery that he was about to accomplish on the cross in Jerusalem. And it's this exodus that opens the entranceway, not merely to the promised land, but to heaven itself, to all who will put their faith in Jesus. In fact, if I can make a theological observation about the canon of scripture, I think it's interesting to note that none of the glimpses we get into heaven in the Old Testament ever include human beings present. Wherever these visions occur and the veil is lifted 
in places like Isaiah or Ezekiel, we see the throne of God, right? We see angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, and we see strange beings like the four living creatures, but there's no human beings. By contrast, consider the similar visions of heaven in the book of Revelation. They include all these same characters, but they also include the 24 elders. In other words, the apostles and the patriarchs, as well as the martyrs and the saints, this great cloud of witnesses from the old covenant and the new, lifting up their prayers and praise to God. Revelation 5 says of this great throng in heaven that they all fell down before the Lamb. And verse 9 says, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And here's the point. Moses may have received the tablets, but only the Lamb of God could unseal the scroll. Moses might have led the way to the promised land, but only Jesus Christ has the keys to death and Hades. He is able to open the door for all who will trust in him on behalf of Moses and on behalf of those who fall much shorter than Moses. Amen? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, the new Moses, the lamb who was slain. Amen.